Let's pray together. Father, it is unspeakably good to know you. And Lord, we ask that you would now cause our hearts to know more deeply than we have to this point in our lives, more fully, make it more real to us, Lord, that we have been freed from slavery to sin by faith in Christ. And Lord, cause us to catch just a whiff, whiff of, to, to get just a glimpse of the glory and joy of being a slave of God. Lord, we ask this, that we might be better sons and daughters, better husbands and wives, better single people, better workers. Lord, we ask that we might be Christ-like because of this. So we pray that your spirit would now do your work through your word and conform us to his image. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a story this week about a guy who uh, used to get, he would regularly ride one of these, one of these trains uh, that a lot of people, a lot of commuters get onto. And he would get onto the, the train and he had a, a, a satchel, and on the satchel, satchel was printed the words, um, I am a slave of Christ. And, um, and he would prominently place this so that as people got on to the train, they would, they would almost not fail to see it. And then once everyone was on the train, he would turn it around, and on the other side of the satchel, it said the words, whose slave are you? And, and the point that this guy was trying to press upon people is that we all serve someone. We are all enslaved to something. And what the, what the Apostle Paul is going to present to us this morning as we look at uh, Romans 6, verses 15 through 23, if you uh, have a copy of the Bible, I would invite you to open there. Uh, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's probably one in the, in the rack in front of you. Uh, I would invite you to grab one. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you. Um, Romans 6, verses 15 through 23 is what we'll be looking at this morning. And what the Apostle Paul is going to teach us this morning is was it what it is to be liberated from slavery to sin and enslaved to God and enslaved to righteousness. And as we, as we uh, approach this, uh, I want to, to try to put in place for us a framework of, of the contrast between the Old Testament law and the system that people lived under, uh, under the Old Covenant when they were living according to the Mosaic Law, and the new system that God has brought into place because of the coming of Christ. So under the Old Covenant, you had this Holy of Holies that, that was in first the tabernacle and then later the temple, and the idea was that God was actually there. And because he was there, that place was supremely holy, and only one person could go in there, that's the high priest, and he could only go in once a year. And when he went in, specific rituals had to be, had to be followed in order that God's holiness would not strike him dead. 
And then outside the Holy of Holies, you had the, the holy place, and only priests could enter the holy place. Again, it was a, it was a very uh, sacred place. And then actually at the tabernacle, guarding the doors to the tabernacle, when, when the people of Israel were encamped in the wilderness, were Moses and Aaron. And then encamped around the tabernacle were the tribe of the Levites. And then encamped around that were, were the 12 tribes of Israel. And everything in the camp had to be clean. And if you became unclean by means of, of sin or contact with what results from sin, which is death, you were made unclean and you had to go outside the camp and then you had to offer a sacrifice for your cleansing. And what the law was doing, the old covenant law, what it was doing was commanding people to stay within the boundaries. It was commanding people to offer these sacrifices. And it was commanding people to fear God because God is holy. And if you come into contact with God who is holy in an unclean state, you die. And so the old covenant was commanding these things. And now that Christ has come, what Paul, what Paul is saying to the Christians in Rome is that law that was giving people those commands, that was not God's ultimate and final plan for the salvation of the world. What has replaced law is grace. And what Paul is teaching in Romans is that where the law commanded, grace compels. So grace compels people with the glory and the goodness of God and makes them want to stay within the boundaries. And grace has, has provided, God in his grace, has provided this sacrifice that makes all those sacrifices for cleansing under the old covenant unnecessary. And grace produces a fear of God that doesn't have to be commanded. It's a fear that we naturally feel and that we, we gladly embrace. And, and so whereas the camp of Israel in some ways was trying to recapture what was lost when Adam was driven out of the Garden of Eden, because what was happening there was God was dwelling with people, even though they were sinners, in, in a clean realm of life, and the law was commanding people to live there, grace is compelling people to feel the beauty of that place and making people want to live there. So what Paul has said in Romans 5 verse 20, he says the law came in to increase the trespass. And, and what he's saying is that when you give sinful people commandments and boundaries and restrictions, their hearts are, are inclined to want to transgress those boundaries and restrictions. And so it increased the trespass. And then he says in verse 20, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the more sinful people got as a result of God's commandments, the more gracious God is seen to be as he extends forgiveness to sinners. And then the last time that we were together, uh, we looked at Romans 6 verses 1 through 14, and there Paul takes up the question in 6.1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the question there is, okay, since our sin makes God look more gracious, should we sin more to show off his grace more? And of course, Paul's answer is, may it never be, by no means. That is not how we should respond to this. Now, why would he ask a question like that? I think he's probably asking a question like that because he's been in dialogue with Jewish people 
who think that that's what's going to result. They've been saying to him over the years, Paul was probably converted around A.D. 30 or 33, depending on when, which, which year Jesus was crucified. And he's writing this, this letter to the Romans in A.D. 57. So for about 25, 27 years now, Paul has been sharing this gospel and saying to people, the law is not God's final plan. The, the grace of God has been displayed in Jesus. And Jewish people have probably been saying to him, well, does this mean we should just keep sinning so that God's grace will abound? And Paul has perfected this answer that he now writes to the Romans that we saw last time, where he says, no, you've been united to Christ by faith, and you've been buried with Christ in baptism, so you're dead to sin. That's what he teaches in 6, 1 through 11. And then some people have argued that 6, 12 through 14 is actually the center of the whole letter, where he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And then I noted how you got sin reigning in verse 12. I'm, I'm rehearsing to you an argument of a scholar who argues that Romans 6, 12 through 14 is the center of the whole letter. Sin is reigning in verse 12. Let not sin reign. And then at the end of verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. And then between that, he says, verse 13, don't present your members to sin. Uh, as instruments for unrighteousness. And down in, in, at the end of verse 13, he speaks of how uh, we're to present our members to God as instruments for righteousness. And at the center of that whole thing, he's saying, it, it, in the middle of verse 13 there, present yourselves to God. So this is what Paul is trying to urge the Romans to do in this letter. Present yourselves to God. And he's going to develop that idea, present yourselves to God, all through Romans 8. And then he's going to develop it more all through Romans 12 through 14. So he's going to flesh this idea out. But first, it's almost like 6.15 through 23 is matching 6.1 through 11, where he said, look, you've been crucified with Jesus. You're dead to sin in him. So, so now you need to understand that you've been liberated from slavery to sin and you've been handed over to a new master. But he goes into this section in verse 15, I think answering another Jewish objection, an objection that he probably heard many times over the years. And it's there in Romans 6 verse 15. An objection presented in the form of a question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Now, let's get our heads around this question. I think the question goes like this. Since the law is not compelling us to stay in the clean realm of life, since the law is no longer commanding us to do that, should we sin because we're not under that law? In other words, should we transgress God's boundaries, go outside the realm of, of life into the unclean realm of the dead? Is that what we should do since we're not under the law anymore and it's now grace that's compelling us to do that? Do you see the, the logic of the question? The logic of the question is, what we need is the law to keep us within the boundaries. And Paul, you're saying that the law is no longer what's commanding us to do that. So should we go outside the boundaries? Should we go out there into the realm of nightmare and demonic influence and horror and wretchedness and death? And, and you can see how how this is being framed by Paul, can't you? What, what he's saying, in, in answer to this question, don't we need the law? 
Don't we need the law to keep us in? Paul's answer to this is, not if you've experienced grace. And, and, and in some ways, what he's, what, he's, what he's arguing here is that grace does not make people want to flee God's presence, to pursue immoral and forbidden, unclean acts that lead to death and banishment to the realm of the dead. That's not what grace does. Look at what he says here in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? What Paul is saying is, if you do that, if you say, okay, I'm not under law, I don't have that command compelling me to, uh, commanding me to stay in anymore, so I'm going to go out there and commit sin because it looks attractive. And what Paul is saying is, if you do that, it will enslave you. What, he, what he's doing is he's disabusing people of this mistaken notion that, that we're free and we can do whatever we want. And he's saying, actually, to engage in those activities is to demonstrate that you're not free at all. You're a slave to your own unrighteous impulses. It's the kind of slavery that you see when people want the freedom to make a choice, and that freedom to make a choice leads them to murder their own children, which only produces regret and shame and dismay all through their lives. That is not freedom. That is not freedom. And Paul, what he's doing is he's saying, wake up. Wake up. You think, you think that the removal of law and the imposition of grace, the bringing in of grace, is going to lead to more sin? No, it's not. If you go that way, you'll be enslaved to your sin. And, and when he says at the end of the verse there, at the end of verse 16, or of obedience which leads to righteousness, it's like what he's saying is, don't you know that this is where life is? When you're, when you're freed from slavery to sin... You're freed from that to obey. The, the greatest freedom is the freedom to obey. It's the freedom to do what you've been commanded to do, not because you're, you're commanded to do it, but because you want to do it. Freedom, freedom is not this authorization to go do whatever you want. Freedom is... A feeling within you that says, I want to do what's right. That's freedom. And that's what Paul is saying, don't you want that freedom which grace brings? And, and, and then, having raised the question and answered it, then he thanks God in verse 17. So I, I think what he's, it's like what he's doing here is clearing up confusion. It's like he's got these believers who have these lingering questions about the role of the law. And he's clearing up the questions about the role of the law. And then he's affirming that they are believers. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, let's put together the first statement of verse 17. Thanks be to God. And the last statement of verse 17, the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And I'm going to ask you to consider in your head 
a question that I asked my kids last night when we were reading this passage together. Who did the committing of these believers in Rome to this standard of teaching? And I think the first line of the verse answers the question. Thanks be to God that all this stuff happens. And at the end of that line, you obeyed from the heart, you became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You notice the subject of the, the, the person doing the committing is not named, but I think it's implied from the fact that Paul thanks God that ultimately it was God who entrusted these Christians in Rome to the standard of teaching. So Paul is thanking God and, and he's praising God because God gave these people over to this teaching. Now, what, what standard of teaching is that? Well, I think it's the one with which we opened our service. Because the king, the Lord Jesus himself, the ruler of heaven and earth, the one who went to the cross to pay the penalty for the, for, for the sin of the world, who then rose from the dead, who then received from the Father all authority in heaven and on earth, said to his followers, because I have authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything that I've commanded you. And you have, you have Christian ministers. Paul's never been to Rome. Paul... In the, in the opening lines of this letter, he's telling the Romans how he wants to get to Rome, but he's never been there yet. And yet this, as we said, as we've said, as we've gone through uh, the book of Romans, this, this Turkish Jew, he was raised in what modern-day Turkey, and then grew up in Jerusalem, this Turkish Jew is writing to these Italian, largely, well, at least partially Gentiles and Jews who are in Rome, and he's telling them that they have been committed to the teaching given by the king of the world. And ministers of the Lord Jesus have come to Rome and God has used their communication of the gospel, their communication of the good news of what the Lord Jesus has done. And God, through the words of those ministers, those Christian ministers, God has entrusted these people to the teaching. So, verse 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. You who were once slaves of sin. You know, I, I love Christians. And one of the reasons I love Christians, I love you people and, and, and believers everywhere uh, you meet them, is the humility that Christianity produces. And the reason humility produces Christianity is because it keeps saying things like this to us. You were slaves of sin. It's honest about what we were before the gospel came to us. There, there's, no, there's no sort of rose-colored glasses that we look at how we used to be. I once heard uh, Denny give his testimony. I think it was here at Kenwood Baptist Church when he joined the church. And he said, you know, when I was a kid, I was into dirt. But then he went on to say, but I was a sinner. And I was a slave to sin. You know, there's only so much dirt you can get into as a six or seven or eight-year-old kid, but he's still a sinner, and he knows he's a sinner. It's beautiful humility that the gospel works into us. We were slaves of sin, but look at what he says there. You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Uh, I, I heard... Uh, uh, a guy talk about, I, I forget who this, this was, I think, it, 
I, I think I may know who it was, but I'm, it doesn't matter. A, a guy was studying at Cambridge, and he was talking to a Muslim. And they were talking about what it means to convert to Islam versus what it means to convert to Christianity. And, and my friend eventually said, oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying that even if people don't believe what Islam teaches, they can still become Muslims. He goes, exactly, you can force them to. And my friend said, that's not at all the way it is with Christianity. You can't force anybody to become a Christian. You can't. It, it has to come from their hearts. It has to be something that they themselves become convinced of, and then they actually see this is true. This is right. This is believable, and I'm going to give everything that I am to this message and to this God that's proclaimed in this message. Though you were once slaves of sin, you've become obedient from the heart. Now, now notice here that you've got people becoming obedient from the heart, and you've got God entrusting them to the message. And if you say to me, which is it? I'm going to say both, both, always and absolutely. Now, if you press me and you say, which is first, we got clear answers on that. We love because he first loved us. That's, I mean, that's, you can find that sort of thing all over the Bible. But if you don't have, you became obedient to the heart, you don't have a Christian. And, and if, you, if you don't have God giving this person to the message, you may have a profession, but... It's only going to last if God has given this person, committed this person over to the message. Maybe you're here today and you recognize that you're a slave to sin. You know, and we, and you know, I know this is true. Um, there are habits and there are practices and there are uh, ways of thinking and ways of living and things that you do that you just can't break free of. Today could be your day of liberation. There is, there is, we sang, there is freedom. Taste and see, hear the call, come to me. Because the Lord Jesus says, he says that he calls his sheep by name. And, and maybe you're hearing him call you in a desire for freedom from your sin. And, and the good news of the gospel is that if you will turn away from that, and if you will put your hope and trust in Jesus, you will be liberated from that sin. You'll be freed from it. And, and we would, we would there, are so, there are so many of us in this room that would be delighted to talk with you further about what that means. We'll be around after the service. And everybody in this room that's a Christian would rejoice with you if that became true of you today. So, you know, if, if you feel yourself having this desire, please come talk to me or talk to one of the other elders or talk to the person in the pew next to you that you know is a, a regular here at Kenwood. This can, this can be your story. As I was thinking about this, uh, verse 17 here, thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed my heart just be began to rejoice over what God has done here at Kenwood Baptist Church. I rejoice over the standard of teaching. We, by God's grace, by God's goodness to us, we love the Bible. This is where the standard of teaching is. And, and you know, recently I, 
a friend of mine who has been attracted to um, St. Michael, uh, the Arch- St. Michael the Archangel, I don't know the full title of the church, the Antiochian, Antiochian Orthodox Church here in town. I don't know the full title of the thing. And, and he, he recommended this book to me about the, um, the Orthodox veneration of Mary because we were discussing the difference between what we believe and what the Orthodox believe. And there is stuff in there that is just crazy. They have no scriptural foundation for this stuff whatsoever. They believe, I, I don't know where they get this idea, they believe that the, the 12 apostles were miraculously translated into Mary's presence so that they could be there when she died. And then when she died, um, they buried her, and then three days later they went to get her remains so that they could worship her remains, which is, first of all, crazy. The New Testament nowhere instructs anybody to worship the, the remains of a dead human being. That is not what Christianity teaches. But the remains were miraculously they had been removed to heaven. They, they believe this stuff. There is no scriptural foundation for this whatsoever. And so, I'm a little bit of a tangent here. If, if we ever get away from, away from the Bible, you come to us with your Bible and you say, the Bible doesn't teach this nonsense. You are saying stuff that the Bible doesn't teach. And if we persist in it, you call us to account. Call us to account. We've been committed now. Praise God for the embrace of the standard of teaching and for the obedience from the heart. And you know where you see this? You see this in the self-sacrificial laying down of our lives. That happens all the time. I got a, we got, there were texts going around last night from uh, Chris and Jen Birch just rejoicing over the, the turnout, the grace-produced turnout to help them move. Nobody commanded them to do that. Nobody com- it's just people loving one another. And there, I've got a three-page list of ministries here. No, four-page list of ministries here at Kenwood Baptist Church. Children's ministry, nursery, children's church, kids' Sunday school, kids' Wednesday night, ministry to the elder, elderly at the nursing home, visitation, men's group, women's ministry, prayer ministry, all this stuff, speak for the unborn, ESL, uh, people driving the van, one person in particular driving the van, college ministry, youth ministry, potluck, Security team, sound booth, on and on the list goes. And and this is people obeying from the heart and, and, and recognizing there is a way that I can serve my brothers and sisters. This verse, I think, also has implications for us because what you've got here is you've got Paul praising God for the way that the Great Commission has been carried out. In Rome. And, um, and so, having communicated my gratitude for all the, all the from the heart obedience that's happening here, I want to say we have a massive need in our day for this kind of Great Commission liberation work. We have a massive need to see people liberated from slavery to sin so that they can become servants of God. I mean, Paul uses the same language, slavery to sin, slaves of God, but slavery to God is glorious. Slavery to God is a joyous, it's, like a, it's almost like a transformation of the word slavery to speak of being a slave of God. This is what we're doing as we communicate the gospel to people. So I'm going to list out five things here that, that I've been praying will, will be happening here in our church And I'm going to ask you to pray that these things will be happening in every circle of your life, 
in every sphere of influence that you're in, I'm praying and, and hoping that we will see fruit in these areas. So number one, let me urge you to talk to people for the sake of their freedom from sin. When you, when you talk to your neighbor or your friend or your coworker, don't think this is somebody who, who's got it all together. They don't, need, they don't really need the gospel. No, think of that person in terms of if they don't know the gospel, this is a slave to sin that I'm dealing with. And the reason that I want to, to talk to them is so that they'll be liberated from this, this tyrannical bondage of sin in their lives. Number two, pray that God would do for them what he's done to us. Verse 17, pray that God would entrust them to the teaching, that, that God would commit them to the standard of teaching, that they would have the joy of being a disciple of Jesus. There's nobody better than Jesus. There's no teacher better than Jesus. There's no king, there's no master, there's no Lord better than Jesus. So, so talk to people for the sake of their freedom from, from, from sin and pray that God would give them to the teaching of Jesus. Number three, uh, I'm going to ask you to be praying toward March 24th where we're going to have another Sunday evening uh, evangelistic event. And this one is going to be, this, one, this may be the greatest, the biggest um, um, way in which people in our culture are enslaved to their sin. We're, we're going we're to have an event that, where Denny is going to address us on the Bible and sexuality, or that kind of topic. The Bible's teaching about human sexuality. This is where so many people in our culture are enslaved. And, and so I'm going to ask you to be praying fervently for this, for Denny as he prepares for it, for, for every conversation that's going to happen with a coworker or a friend or a neighbor as you invite people to this. And, and our prayer is that unbelievers would be in the room and that they would be liberated from slavery to sin. On March 24th, Sunday night, March 24th, please invite people to come along to that. Fourth, Easter's coming, April 24th. March 24, April 24. Fix those days in your mind. And, you know, if your friend won't come to, to the Sunday evening event on March 24th, invite them to come worship with us on Easter. And number five, Lord willing, the elders are going to go away for a retreat on March 15 and 16. And we're, one of the things that we're going to discuss is we're going to plan future evangelistic events. Would you pray that God would lead us and that the the Lord would use our planning and our preparation for these things to, to bring about a great harvest of souls. We want to enter into this labor. We, we believe the Lord Jesus saying the fields are white under harvest. We want to enter into the labor of others. And I'm asking you to pray for us as we, as we do this. So talk to people for the sake of their freedom. Pray that God would entrust them to the teaching of the Lord Jesus uh, pray for March 24, pray for Easter, April 24, invite people to come to those two, and then pray for us as elders. Verse 18, you, thanks be to God, verse 17, you become obedient and you were, uh, you, you were committed to the standard of teaching, verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Slavery to righteousness is, is a joyful obedience and an inability to continue in sin. When I was a student at, at Dallas Seminary, one of our teachers, John Hanna, he would tell us on the first day of class, he would say, you know, you're, you're sinners, so you're probably going to cheat. But you're Christians, so you're going to have to come confess to me. So 
just don't cheat, and then you won't have to come confess. And then he would say, if you can cheat with impunity, you got a bigger problem. Because if you can cheat with impunity, you're not a believer, and you're going to face the wrath of God. And, and that's what it is to be a slave to righteousness. We, we still have this sinful flesh, so we're still inclined to sin, but we can't stay in it, praise God. We can't not confess it, praise God. Having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness, verse 19. Now, in verses 19 uh, through 23, Paul's going to do these contrasts. Once, now, uh, shame, sanctification, death, life. And really, this whole, this whole passage has been a series of contrasts. Slaves of sin, slaves of God. Uh, the outcome of that, uh, slavery to sin is death. Outcome of slavery to God is righteousness. You've been set free from sin and you've been enslaved to God. You were, verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Uh, this is often interpreted to mean mental limitations. Actually, I think Paul is probably talking about the weakness of our flesh meaning the, the difficulties of the mortal condition that we're in and the limitations imposed upon us because of, of our sin. I think that's probably more what, what he's getting at here. I'm speaking in human terms because of, your because of the weakness of your flesh. He goes on in verse 19 there, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. Now think, about, think back in terms of the clean realm. The holy of holies, holy place, camp, that's all the clean realm. You, were, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, slaves to things that resulted in you being declared impure and having to go outside the presence of God and to lawlessness, law-breaking, which led to more lawlessness. That's, what you, that's the way you once lived. Formerly, just as you once did that, and I think what Paul is doing is saying something like this. Think about all the creativity that you've used in your life to cover up your transgressions. Think about all the creativity that you've employed in your life to figure out a way to sin. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Use it's, it's, it's like a put-off, put-on thing. This is the way you used to live. Now you need to redirect all that creativity, all that ingenuity, all that cleverness, and present your members to righteousness, slaves to righteousness. And what that leads to is sanctification. Sanctification is being set apart to God. Sanctification is what you enjoy when you're able to enter into the presence of God because you're devoted to Him and you're set apart to Him and you enjoy the goodness of His presence. It's like living in the Garden of Eden. And then, so, you got a contrast between you once did this, now do this, and now we get a con another contrast in verses 19 through 23 between uh, shame, I think, and sanctification, verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. It, it, what he's saying is righteousness had no claim on you. you. You could sin with impunity. You could sin with no remorse. Verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? It, it's like he's saying, what fruit were you getting? And he wants you to recognize, I didn't get anything from that sin except remorse. And then Paul adds, yeah, and shame. 
What fruit were you getting from the things of which you're now ashamed? And then he says, for the end of those things is death. So that's on the one side. No fruit, shame, and death. Now on the other side, verse 22, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Let's think of the contrast between shame and sanctification. And and do it this way. Imagine, if you can, what Isaiah saw. He sees the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the Lord of the universe, the judge of the living and the dead, says to someone, depart from me. I never knew you. The dominant feeling in that person's heart is going to be shame. Shame. Now contrast that with the Lord of the universe saying to someone, enter in to the joy of your master. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is you are set apart to God. You are welcomed into God's presence. And the end of that, Paul says in verse 22, is eternal life. And then there's another verse contrasting, a set of contrasts in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. And then contrasting wage is free gift. What you earn from your sin justly, rightly, is death. But you don't earn salvation. You don't earn eternal life. No, this is grace. This is God's free, unmerited mercy. And this is another humility producer in our hearts because we know, I didn't earn this. I I was a slave to sin. I deserve God's wrath. And God mercifully, graciously, lovingly saved me. The free gift contrasts, contrasts with wage. The free gift of God. And you note how God stands in the same slot that sin stands in. And one reason for that is because Paul's talking about slavery to sin versus now slavery to God. Which power is your master? And then where the third slot in the first half of the line, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, verse 23 is, that's a gospel presentation for you. There's, there's, there's the gospel. There's a holy God, and because of his holiness, our transgressions make us sinners. And because of his holiness, when we sin, we deserve to die. But that holy God has made a free gift available. And that free gift extends eternal life to those who will turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ Jesus. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And... A great illustration of what it is to be sanctified, to be one who walks with God, can be seen in Psalm 84, where the psalmist says in verses 10 and 11, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This guy doesn't want to go outside the camp into the unclean realm of the dead to enjoy impurity and lawlessness. No, he wants to be in the courts of the Lord. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor, not shame. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you did not pay us our fair wage. But in a mercy whose foundations stretch into eternity past, you have given to us the, the free gift of eternal life. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be like those people that took the gospel to those Christians in Rome. We pray that you'd cause us to be faithful to the teaching, to the standard of the teaching. We pray that you would help us to be clear on the message of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the joy of seeing people turn to you. And Lord, we ask that that you would break the chains of sin in the lives of those with whom we're sharing the gospel. We pray that they would experience the wonderful liberation of being given to a new master and finding freedom in obedience. Lord, we love you and we pray that you do this more and more in our hearts. Help us to understand what this is. And we pray that you would make us fruitful. We pray that, that you would add to the glory of your name by, by letting us enter into this, this project that you're on of seeking worship, worshipers for yourself. And we ask that you do this in Christ's name. Amen.